Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, the largest wildfire in Texas history torches over a million acres, how you can help in the recovery, and how the electric co-op movement energized rural Texas. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. The largest wildfire in Texas history has ripped across the panhandle. At least two people have been killed and countless homes have been destroyed or damaged. Agricultural livelihoods could be lost in the wake of the Smokehouse Creek Fire and other wildfires. The damage from the Smokehouse Creek Fire is being assessed right now. Heather Helms came back home to Canadian Texas from Oklahoma to help her parents and was overwhelmed by what she saw. It was heartbreaking. It was very heartbreaking to see that everything that everybody has worked so hard for over the years is, I mean, you just don't even realize that in the split of a second it can all be gone. Her father helped people evacuate Canadian earlier in the week. Right now I'm just waiting for my dad to get out of the hospital because he inhaled too much smoke. So they're keeping him for another day to just do some observation and then just make sure they're good before I have to go home. There are still other active wildfires, and the National Weather Service warns that the heat and high winds are likely to cause critical fire weather conditions again over the weekend. As the recovery begins, many in the state are asking how they can help their fellow Texans who have lost so much. Blair Fannin is the Public Information Officer for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Disaster Assessment and Recovery. Yeah, we're Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service and our uh, Disaster Assessment Recovery Unit. Uh, we've we've stood up uh, three supply points uh, up in the Panhandle region. Uh, they're in the east, the north, and west locations. Uh, the east location is in Pampa at the Clyde Carruth Pavilion. The north location uh, is at the uh, Canadian Ranch Supply, and our west location is out at uh, by Hutchinson County Airport. And between those three locations, we're accepting hay feed, fence supplies, uh, cattle feed, just anything. And and as you know, unfortunately, the Panhandle region has gone through uh, these horrible wildfires before, and Texas have been so generous, and we appreciate that generosity, and we we anticipate that that Texans will will do that again. And we also have our friends from out. Uh, you know, all across the nation that, that will provide donations. But uh, we have these three uh, collection points set up, and uh, uh, we request uh, uh, these resources because we've got uh, cattle ranchers and uh, individuals out there that, that are experiencing uh, the, the worst wildfires in Texas history. So Texans who aren't in that part of the woods, uh, you know, further down across the state, can they do something also? They sure can. They they could call a uh, dedicated number, 806-354-5800, uh, and, uh, you know, just ask general questions. If they have something they would like to donate, we could certainly uh, accept that. Uh, they can also find out more information on, on our website, agrilifeextension.tamu.edu. So what are the farmers and ranchers going through right now? In recovery, where are we? 
Yeah, we're we're still probably in in the you know the early phase of this. Uh, uh, as you can imagine, the the mental aspect of this has just got to be is unfathomable. But uh, going out and doing assessments, uh, trying to see you know what what damage there is, you know what livestock have, have, have you know been impacted by this if they're injured, uh, if they can't re, you know locate them. Uh, you know, that kind of, if they have located their cattle, you know, trying to get uh, feed and resources to them uh, to begin the recovery process. So, uh, you know, this is this is still the early phase of this, and this is something that's going to, uh, you know, continue for in the days and the weeks to come. What were the conditions that allowed the largest wildfire in Texas history to become such a giant uh, disaster? Yeah, unfortunately, we had a perfect recipe of, of wind, plus we had plenty of, of, of dead forage that would, was supplying fuel uh, for this fire. And uh, we had that, you know, that cold front that came through with those high winds. And, uh, you know, that, that, that just, you know, like I said, it was a perfect recipe to ignite uh, this type of system. And uh, of course, we're also uh, uh, our partners, state agency partners, are, are telling people across the state to, to continue to be in prevention mode. Even though we've we've already had the wildfires, we've had the event, we've got more high wind forecasted over the week over the weekend. So uh, Texans need to be prepared. So, with the Texas Forest Service and other efforts out there trying to. Uh, contain the fire, put it out, keep other fires from happening. Is Texas, uh, does it have enough resources overall to deal with these types of disasters? I think you're, you're seeing uh, Texas, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, all, all resources are being being put put forward. It's every everyone on deck. And uh, certainly Governor Abbott in the, in the state of Texas is employing all the resources that it has and, and doing, you know, a phenomenal job uh, led by the Texas Division of Emergency Management, uh, Texas A&M Forest Service, and uh, certainly Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service and disaster assessment recovery teams and our network of county extension agents across the state. Uh, we're, we're ready and we're already at boots on the ground responding to this. And uh, we'll, we'll be working 24-7 to make sure that Texas is taken care of. Blair Fannin is the public information officer for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Disaster Assessment and Recovery. During the Great Depression, rural Americans needed the power of electricity that had been established in urban areas. Unfortunately, providing electricity to rural places was cost prohibitive, and up to 90% of farmers were still not able to access electricity because existing distributors would not build lines to their farms. In 1935, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order to create the Rural Electrification Administration, which authorized $410 million to provide loans for rural electrification. Following a successful model of electrification through rural electric co-ops in Texas, these loans were targeted towards cooperatives whose mission as nonprofit organizations made them farmer-focused rather than profit-focused. The story of how rural Texas was electrified is told in the new book, Power, How the Electric Co-op Movement Energized the Lone Star State. I spoke to the author, Joe Holly. So um, imagine, David, if, if you were living in San Antonio in 1880, you, you had electricity. San Antonio, Galveston, Dallas, Houston. 
there is power in those cities. But if you live just a few miles out of town, the the power companies would not string their lines out into the countryside because it wasn't economically feasible. My mother grew up in a little town south of San Antonio called Bigfoot, named after Bigfoot Wallace. And Bigfoot did not have electricity into the 1930s. So San Antonio, 1880, little towns throughout Texas, including San, uh, including towns around San Antonio, had no electricity. And uh, it made life extremely difficult. It, it was like the Dark Ages. Our listeners probably know uh, Robert Cairo and his multi-volume history of, of Lyndon Johnson. And one of the most poignant chapters or sections in that book is his description of the hill country farm woman and the difficult life that she led because they didn't have electricity in the Texas hill country. You know, everything from cooking over a wood stove to canning and preserving over a wood stove to heating water inside a stifling kitchen in the summertime to washing clothes outside over, over a wood fire. Cairo talks about how there were women who, if you saw them, you would assume they were in their 60s. They were actually in their 30s, back bent, hands rough and red, basically because they had no electricity. And the effort to change that it fell upon the New Deal and a rethinking of what a government can do for its people? That's exactly right. It's... Uh, it's part of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal with, with two purposes. One was to put people to work and to, to string lines, elect, uh, power lines out into the countryside, but, but basically to bring rural Americans uh, into the modern era. Uh, I was reading not too long ago that in 1935, there was something like 6.5 million rural Americans, six million of them didn't have electricity. And so Franklin Roosevelt resolved to change that. And he had help. He had help with some prominent Texans, including Sam Rayburn, who was the uh, Texas House Speaker and then the uh, U.S. House Speaker for years and grew up on a farm in North Texas. And as he liked to remind people, he knew about uh, women having to, to cook over over wood stoves. And, and he knew the life that his fellow rural Texans led. And he was resolved to do everything he could to bring electricity to the countryside. LBJ, of course, was another champion. And his sort of, I guess, a slogan when he would be campaigning throughout the hill country, you know, Johnson City and Blanco and so forth, is, I'll get it for you. And, and he did. There's, I remember that there's a part of the book that talks about how after um, electricity finally came to the hill country, there were a whole lot of little babies named Linda out there. Because people were so appreciative that this finally had happened. They yeah. were told that this was not going to happen, but it just was right. uh, beyond the ability or the will. I mean, it was really mm -hmm. just came down to uh, there wasn't money to be made to string the wires to generate the power to get to the, the great wide open Texas space. 
Yeah, and j just imagine the frustration, David. You're you're a farmer, let's say, in the hill country, and you realize how drastically the li your life and your family's lives would change if you had electricity. So, you know, maybe it's a Saturday morning, and and you uh, you put on your sort of uh, uh, pressed khakis and your white shirt that you wear at church on Sunday morning, and you go into town for a meeting with uh, Texas Power and Light or somebody. And they, they, they look at you and almost sneer, saying, you know, we're, we're not in the business of necessarily making lives better. We're in the business of making money. And we can't make any money by stringing lines into the countryside where people live five and ten miles apart. And there are not many of them as, as well. The New Deal, the Roosevelt administration, they didn't create a governmental body that was going to string up the lines of instead what did they do you know they they set up a cooperative which means that you had member owners you would pay in a, a, an initial fee and uh, the government uh, the federal government the rural electrification association would loan this new entity uh, money to to put in the equipment and to get houses hooked up, and uh, it would also the, the money would also go to hire managers and and people who who would take care of the equipment, take care of the lines, and now you know we don't really really think about electric co-ops. Those of us who live in the city, for example, but there are seventy six of them that still exist, and they are member owned. Right. So the philosophy was to help local groups accomplish this uh, on their own. It wasn't on the big own, Washington, right. D.C. going to come in and do it for them. They empowered them. They helped them get the capital to do it. But it was That's going exactly to be right. local communities doing it them together, electing their own leaders and, and making this happen. Uh, it sounds exactly downright right. un-American, <laughs> and and it it would it was frustrating for these early uh, organizers of, of the co-ops uh, because that that was the the line of of the the major utility companies. It was communistic. It was socialistic, and when you know there there are co-ops in all all areas of life, and. Um, the, the, the member-owned part was, was the important part. And the fact that, it, as, as you say, it wasn't a big government program uh, coming in to run things. There was a Texas governor, W. Lee, passed the biscuits, Papio Daniel. Um, <laughs> That's right. And he was, he was a con artist who became, and a showman who became uh -huh. governor and then a senator from Texas. Um, so how does he figure into this? The, the irony of past the biscuits, Pappy O'Daniel, David, is that, um, you know, he, he gets elected governor first and then U.S. senator uh, on the platform of both the Ten Commandments and and social security for, for, for everybody over age 65 and so forth. And once he gets elected, uh, he totally uh, forgets, the, I, I don't know how he would have implemented Ten Commandments, but he forgets his campaign promises to help uh, the, the common folks, the, the, the little people. He, he got elected because he was extremely popular on the radio. 
and farm folks would probably come in from the fields at noon to listen to Pass the Biscuits, Pappy O'Daniel. And his hillbilly band. Uh, that's exactly right. The, uh, the Light Crust Doughboys and, and Bob Wills worked with him for a while. So, so once he gets elected, he turns into this rabid anti-communist. Well, the, the people he's after are uh, people who kind of cut into the, to the work of the big power companies, the, the uh, electric co-ops. And, and so they, they were communistic and, and red run and so forth. Uh, I, there's a, an Austin American statesman columnist back then who noted the delicious irony in one of her columns that uh, Pappy gained his fame through the radio, the electric radio that those farm families would not have had had there not been electric cooperatives. I so, think the irony is probably lost sight. But so to this point, though, that there was this conflict between the uh, urban power companies that were, you know, uh -huh. lighting up the cities, and then when the rural electrification actually worked, and then they saw that as a threat to their model, mm -hmm. um, that it became, uh, even, even as you write in your book, Power, Joe, how that, that became, uh, it went to court. And what was the significance of that court battle? Part of the significance of the court battle is that there, there's a, a blending, a merging, in tech, a merging in Texas of uh, rural and urban. There's a whole lot of Texas that becomes suburban, suburban. So who's going to provide power to, to these folks? A lot of those, you know, it's, it's certainly evident today, today, but a lot of those rural areas, uh, those little towns were subsumed into uh, the Metroplex or the Austin, San Antonio, Houston Triangle, or whatever you want to call it. And so th there's this question about who, who can provide power to them. And it, it was long and complicated, and at last some kind of agreement was worked out that the co-ops could provide power to, to some of these suburban areas. The, the other interesting thing is how when, when the, the major power companies realized that the, the co-ops were a threat to them, they would come in and try to undercut what the, the co-ops were offering. And they would build what were called spiked lines. They would build just far enough into rural areas that they would, would take away enough of the potential member base that the, the co-ops wouldn't work. You quote someone uh, in the books that would say that the uh, urban big city power companies would give electricity for free if they thought that it would crater the, uh, the, the co-ops out in the rural areas. Why? That, that, that's right. Uh, they're, they're trying to put them out of business, and that, that was one of the enticements. And it was interesting. Uh, co-op members felt that, that sense of membership and, uh, and, and a sense that, that, that the co-ops worked for them. And I remember one, one of the, the people I, I heard about, talked about, uh, lived in a little town called Zobjectville in central Texas. And when they came to see him, he said, you know, go to hell. <laughs> uh, he was sticking with the co-op. Right. So these co-ops became more than just 
a way to supply electric power to these far-flung rural areas. They became almost part of the identity for many people uh, on the farm, and, um, and they took a lot of pride in their co-ops. They were part owners of it, and so they saw this as a way to also look at other problems that uh, confronted uh, rural parts of Texas. Uh, you know, they became, uh, they weren't necessarily connected, but they were telephone co-ops and, and, and other areas that, that would use the co-op model to benefit rural Texans. And as you say, they, they became uh, part of the identity of small town Texas. There were annual meetings where, uh, you know, they were like sort of electric co-op fairs uh, with programs and music and uh uh, co electric co-op queens. Uh, th there were programs where you would learn how to use new appliances that were coming online, whether it was an electric stove or a refrigerator or whatever. And, and there were usually women who would come out to your house and show you how to cook on an electric range. So how did this impact, um, you know, as the war on poverty uh, continued uh, to with the with the uh, co-ops, how did this did it improve the quality of life for people that were that had plugged in? You know, it it did improve the quality of life because as as we mentioned earlier, it was just, it was hard, a hard life on the farm, and uh, you know after World War One, after World War Two, there were a lot of of young soldiers, men and women who went off and and realized there was another way to live and didn't come back to the farm. So power made it made it easier to live in the country. But um, there was always it, it was always a, a sort of a losing battle because the cities were always more enticing over the years than than farm life for a lot of people. And even though co-ops helped, they couldn't stop sort of the the young people drain that uh, ha has really hurt uh, small town Texas. And, you, you know, you, you see it when you drive through small towns around the state, even today. Some of them are abandoned. Yeah, exactly. The uh, So it's interesting how this model uh, is similar to the problem that we have had with the delivery of high-speed Internet to uh, rural Texas and mm -hmm. the inability to get high-speed Internet, how expensive it's been, and promises that we've gotten from – current Texas politicians about how they're going right. to solve that, but yet it is, it is yet to happen. I mean, do you see similarities? Happened. What's interesting is that uh, as, as co-ops sort of evolved into the modern world, those are the kind of issues that they are presumably equipped to deal with. Joe Holly has been the native Texan columnist for the Houston Chronicle since 2013. He's the author of multiple books. His latest is Power, How the Electric Co-op Movement Energized the Lone Star State. Tuesday is primary day in Texas, and we will see if Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Ken Paxton will be successful in their efforts to purge the Republican Party. Abbott is looking to weed out Republican lawmakers who do not go along with this school voucher scheme that many saw as an assault on Texas public schools. Paxton is also out for revenge. He wants to punish Republican lawmakers who impeached him. 
Also, border security is tracking as a top issue for voters, according to the Texas Politics Project. And border protection is a top issue for candidates running for the Republican nomination to represent the congressional district with the most border miles. Congressional District 23 covers over 800 miles of the Texas-Mexico border. Republican incumbent Tony Gonzalez is being accused by four primary challengers of not being tough enough to protect the border. At a recent forum organized by the Bexar County Republican Party with candidates seeking the GOP nomination for Congressional District 23, the incumbent, Tony Gonzalez, was a no-show. We are very fortunate that we have almost 100% attendance here. That's the local GOP party chair, Jeff McManus. There's only one person missing, and unfortunately, it's been missing many times and many votes that have been taken on behalf of good constitutional conservatives. But I, I'm not going to mention his name. It should be of little surprise that Gonzalez skipped the event. The Texas Republican Party censured him in March, saying he violated the party's principles with his votes in support of marriage equality. And after the Uvalde massacre, which is in his district, he voted in favor of the bipartisan firearms restriction bill. Gonzalez shrugged off the censure and the prospect that it would bring a cadre of primary challengers. Anybody who wishes to challenge me, it's a fool's errand. I'll run you to the deep end of the pool every single time and drown you. So I welcome it. Four candidates took Gonzalez's challenge. Brandon Herrera is a firearms manufacturer, and he calls himself the AK guy. But I think it's time District 23 had a congressman who used the Constitution as their framework, not what kind of friends or money they could get in Washington. Victor Avila is a retired special agent with Homeland Security. I've taken down human traffickers, drug cartels. I almost lost my life to the drug cartels. Julie Clark is the chair of the Medina County GOP. I'm here to fight for the American people and remove the corrupt politicians from office. And Frank Lopez Jr. calls himself the U.S. border patriot. I believe in the Republican platform, the Constitution, and the Word of God. Gonzalez has represented the 23rd Congressional District since 2021. He won the seat after fellow Republican Will Hurd stepped down. The sprawling southwestern Texas district used to be considered a swing district, but Republicans have won it repeatedly for the last 10 years. But election watchers wonder if a candidate who is too far to the right wins the GOP nomination, could it swing back to the Democrats? However, that didn't seem to concern the candidates at the Bear County Forum. There was little to no disagreement among the four on the issues. They seemed more interested in showing which candidate could attack Gonzalez the hardest while also providing the wildest disinformation. They all agreed that Social Security was some sort of scam. Brandon Herrera. FDR and proposing Social Security kind of was the, the beginning of politicians promising things that they knew wouldn't be solved in the future because they could just kick the can down the road. Victor Avila. I did so many cases of fraud in Social Security and Medicare. If you took all that money of the fraudulent activity within within these two entitlements, it wouldn't be broken. Frank Lopez. One of the first things we need to do is stop giving Social Security benefits to these illegal alien invaders that are pouring across our border. Julie Clark. You know every illegal that's coming across the border gets Social Security. That's not true. According to PolitiFact, people who are undocumented or seeking asylum are ineligible to receive Social Security benefits. 
Federal law requires that a person be a U.S. citizen or a permanent legal resident to receive the benefits. The same for SNAP food stamps or HUD housing. The candidates were also in harmony on what happened during the Uvalde massacre that killed 19 students and two teachers. All said the problem isn't the ease of access of high-powered guns. Frank Lopez. We need public schools. We need a revival in this land. We need to repent and come back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Julie Clark. We don't have a gun problem. We don't have a mass shooting problem. We have a mental health problem. Brandon Herrera. The federal government will never solve this problem. It's not something that can be solved by the government. This is something that starts in the family, which I believe is the best form of government, is the family. Victor Avila. I think you guys get, a, get the picture here that everyone up here is a big defender of the Second Amendment. We're never going to vote the way this empty chair voted. While Gonzalez's chair was empty on the debate stage, he's been busy on social media and appearing in person at campaign events across the district. If he manages to earn over 50% of the vote on March 8th primary day, he will avoid a runoff. But if he drops below 50, Gonzalez will be forced into a one-on-one ballot showdown with one of these four challengers. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can write to us with an email to texasmatters at tpr.org. You can find more Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us wherever you find great podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.